I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles again to James chapter 1. This morning we're in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. I have found uh, the letter of James to be so rich and so full of truth that I feel like every time I prepare, every week, I have more content than I have time. And so if we don't get through all of the material this morning, we'll pause and finish it up next week, I promise you. In the words of Adam Brooks, I will be aware not only of my time, but of my points, unlike J.R. Smith. Um, if you get that, you know how hard it is to be a Cleveland sports fan. So, James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18, I'll read it out for us before we pray. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are no flights of fancy or fits of passion with you. You are stable and steady. Your word is fixed in the heavens. It cannot be edited, amended, added to, or subtracted from. And your word tells us the truth about you and about ourselves. And so it's our prayer this morning that as we open our Bibles and look to see what you would have to say to us this morning, that you would give us hearts to receive your word. We pray that not only would we receive your word, but that our lives would be changed by it. That in the words of Paul, that we would be transformed as you renew our minds. Lord, we pray that you would convince us of what you have to say. That you would exalt Jesus, cause us to trust and follow him more passionately. We ask all that we have in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, in the March 2018 Atlantic, there's an article about a man named Larry Smarr. He's known affectionately as the man who saw inside himself. See, Larry has been using supercomputers for the past decade or so to monitor his health. And with the aid of the supercomputer, he was actually able to diagnose himself with Crohn's disease before any observable symptoms came about. And more recently, he's used all sorts of data. He's gathered not only from the kind of food that he takes in to the kind of energy that he expends and also from routine checkups and exams to create a 3D image of his insides. He can project it into a room in which he and his doctors can go into and observe all that's happening inside of his body. 
Here is a man who knows one thing. And that one thing is, when it comes to his physical health, the problem is inside of him. And the reason that Larry is so important for us as followers of Jesus is that so much of following Jesus correctly has to do with knowing ourselves and assessing ourselves rightly in light of what's inside of us and what the Bible tells us is true about ourselves. Now this morning we're going to have our minds and our framework corrected by Scripture, and it's so important that we do that. Because each and every one of us come out of a culture today that tells us almost unceasingly that if there is a problem with us at all, the problem's outside of us. There's some sort of mountain that we have to climb, some sort of obstacle that we have to overcome, and the solution to our problem that's outside of us is to be found somewhere deep within us. And we have the resolve and the willpower, the determination to fix the problems that we face. But see, if you've read the Bible at all, you'll know that sometimes when you open up Scripture, it's a bit like going into a bizarro world where everything's upside down, but in actual fact, everything's really right side up. And the Bible is the only book that's going to tell us this morning the truth, which is, if there is a problem, there is. Our greatest problem is actually within ourselves, and the only solution is to be found outside of ourselves. If we're not careful, we're going to get the self-help bug and get things turned around. And unfortunately, and frankly, much of contemporary Christian literature doesn't help us very much in this respect either. But the message of James 1, 13 to 18 is very simple. It's this. That we are tempted by our own desires and recreated by our God. We're tempted by our own desires and recreated by our God. This is the kind of message that only the Bible will tell us. And so as we make our way through the passage this morning, I, I want to just do so under those two headings. I want you to look with me first as we get right to it. That we are tempted by our own desires. Verses 13 to 15. Read with me again verse 13. James says, let no one say when he or she is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now as we've made our way through the letter of James, we've been talking from verse 2 all the way to verse 12 about the issue of trials. And we've said that trials are one of the God-ordained means to cause us to have our faith strengthened so that we become more like Jesus. Trials are a good thing. But now there's this almost sudden and abrupt pivot from trials on the one hand to temptation on the other. And this is complicated by the fact that all throughout James chapter 1, the word that's translated trial and translated tempt, the base word for both is the same Greek word. And so there's a decision that has to be made in terms of how to translate verse 13. Clearly trials for James are a good thing that ultimately lead to life. And in context here, temptation is a negative thing when left unchecked that leads to death. So how are we to make sense of this seemingly abrupt turn? Well, I like the CSB translation in verse 13. CSB is a wonderful translation. They render the verse like this. Let no one undergoing a trial say, I am being tempted by God. See, the connection here is that so often when you and I face trials, afflictions, and sufferings in our lives, those trials 
are nearly always accompanied by temptation to sin. So, for example, if we take the illustration that James uses of poverty and riches, and we look to Agur in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, Agur prays, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So riches provide a trial, and with that trial, we're tempted to forget the Lord and his providence in our lives. Poverty, on the other hand, presents a trial, and with that trial, temptation wells up within us, at least in Agur's perspective, to steal or do underhanded things in order to provide for ourselves. Trials are almost always a unique opportunity for temptation to seize upon us. And so James says, when we face trials, let no one say, I am being tempted by God. So there's a difference. Trials are something that happen to us. Temptation is something that happens in us. And we know from the entire Bible that God tests his people. Think Abraham, Genesis 22.1. Then God tested Abraham. So James anticipates someone saying, well, I know that God tests his people. And you've been talking about how God tests us to strengthen us and cause us to persevere in our faith. Isn't it right or fair to say that God tempts us as well? I mean, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you're enduring hardship and you think to yourself, Lord, why have you brought me here? Why are you tempting me? And James says, not so fast. That's the very thing that we can't say that God does. Let's think for a moment about what temptation is. What is temptation? A trial is good and it's meant to strengthen our faith. What is temptation? Well, John Owen, who is a, a great Christian thinker and writer of the past, writes about temptation in this way. He says that temptation is, in particular, something that causes a man or a woman to sin, gives him or her opportunity to do so, or causes him or her to neglect his duty. Temptation may suggest evil to the heart, or this is key, may draw out the evil that is already there. It is a temptation to a person if something is by any means able to distract them from their communion with God or the consistent and universal obedience that is required of them. So what is a temptation? A temptation is anything that causes you or I to sin, causes us to have an opportunity to sin, or causes us to neglect our duty of obedience to the Lord. That's what temptation is. And so James says, let no one say in the midst of trial, I am being tempted by God. Why? Because to ascribe temptation to the Lord is a complete misunderstanding of who God is. There is a vital and fundamental importance for Christians to understand theology and doctrine. Because James grounds this command in the doctrine of God. He says God is utterly and unchangeably holy. Look at what he says. He says, let no one say that he's being tempted by God for, because, God cannot be tempted with evil. That's to say that God is holy. Now I would imagine that most of us, when we hear the word holiness, we think of perfection. God is perfect. 
And there's an element of holiness that includes that. But really what we mean when we say that God is holy is we mean that he is separate. He's completely unique. He is in a class all by himself. Sin, wickedness, and evil has no place in him whatsoever. So God cannot be tempted with evil. Evil has no allure for him. Evil has no appeal to him. He's not sort of um, curious about sin. He's absolutely and utterly opposed to it. He can't look on it with indifference. He does not excuse it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He is repulsed at the sight of evil. So he cannot be tempted. And because he can't be tempted, James goes on to say, not only that, but he tempts no one. Imagine with me a scenario for a moment in which the Lord is presented with an opportunity to tempt you to sin. We know that God brings trials in order to bring life to us, but now he has an opportunity to bring a temptation which would issue in death. Does it make any sense to you to think for a moment that God would do something that is completely, invariably opposed to everything he is and stands for? It's ridiculous. For God to tempt a man or a woman to sin would be to stop being holy. And for God to stop being holy would be for God to stop being God. God cannot tempt because he's untemptable. It's not even a word, but it should be. It's sort of the literal translation of the word that James uses. He's utterly untemptable. And so he doesn't tempt anyone to sin. But here's where it gets really interesting for us, and this is going to get real, so buckle up. If not God, then who? If God isn't the one who tempts us, then who is the one who tempts us? What's responsible for our temptation? I think if you or I were writing the letter of James, some of us should like to say the devil. Wrong D word, isn't it? If I'm speaking frankly and honestly to us as a church, I think I've I've found a a tendency to try and find the devil under every rock and every pew. But that's not where James goes, is it? Look at what James says. And listen to his words as the x-ray of the Bible examines our hearts. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person, each man or woman, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You ever go into a, a grocery store and you see they have like a little bank inside of it? There's a grocery store in uh, Michigan, Detroit area, called Farmer Jack. And inside of many Farmer Jacks, there's a bank like in all kinds of grocery stores. So one day, a few years ago, at about lunchtime, $50,000 from the vault in this little bank in Farmer Jack goes missing. And by the time the people who work there realize that the money's gone, they start to come up, I'm sure, with all kinds of theories of what happened to the money. I mean, surely it didn't just disappear. The bank was robbed. No one came in with a gun. No one slipped a note across to the teller. Where'd the money go? Well, a guy by the name of Shannon, who was the manager of the bank at the time, tells the story perfectly. See, at that point in time, Shannon was completely addicted to gambling. His bank account was overdrawn. He really just wanted to get a leg up in life. 
And so he goes in the vault at lunchtime, takes $30,000 of $100 bills, $20,000 of $20 bills, and goes straight away to the casino. And he tells a story about how when the, uh, another teller called him to ask him to bring her back something to eat, he realized what he had done, and he says, quote, it wasn't until I got that call that I realized what I had done. I just took $50,000 from my job to go to the casino at lunch. Yeah, the bank was robbed, and it was an inside job. See, James is saying sin is always like that. It is always an inside job. No matter how much you or I might like to remove ourselves from situations in which we might be tempted, we carry about with us in our own hearts all of the essential components that would lead us to sin. And the very moment that we try and excuse ourselves or get ourselves away from the examining eye of the Bible by proposing the devil as the source of our sin, trying that age-old excuse, the devil made me do it, we hear the words of John Owen again, Satan has in us an agreeable party within our very own breasts for most of his ends. James won't let us off the hook. He looks at us gently and squarely in the eyes and he says, you are the man or you are the woman but you are lured and enticed by your own desire. So can I just say, humbly, maybe don't follow your heart. Maybe don't follow your desire. Look at the picture that James paints. Each one is tempted when they are lured. That's a fishing imagery of being pulled out of the water by being hooked, enticed, that's being magnetically drawn to something that's placed in front of us. But the thing that does it is our own desire. This is vital. Hear me clearly. We do not lust, friends, because of the over-sexualized culture that we live in. We lust because we desire the cheap and easy fix of sexual gratification outside of the context of marriage. We do not gossip because the people at work or school are also gossiping, and if we don't join in, we'll be left out. No, we gossip because we desire the cheap thrill of tearing somebody else down so that we might magnify ourselves. We do not overeat because in the United States there's an abundance of food provided for us. We overeat because we desire the comfort of a stuffed belly instead of the grace of God that provides us with our basic needs. We don't neglect Bible reading and prayer and meditation because our lives are just so busy and we don't have any time for it. We neglect those things because we're lazy and we desire a lie-in in the morning or we desire to veg out in front of Netflix in the evening. We sin because we're sinners. See how only the Bible will tell you this? Lord and enticed by our own desires... We sin quite simply because we want to. Now look at the process. As James continues, he says in verse 15, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth or gives birth to death. So desire when left unchecked, temptation when left unchallenged, becomes the proud parent of sin which then in turn quickly moves to make desire the proud grandparent of a child called death. Isn't that a horrible picture? Giving birth to death? 
the grim reaper in a bassinet. It's a boy. But look at how quickly this happens. I can remember when Henry was first born, people would tell us all the time, you know, they grow up so fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to get a full night's sleep right now. Talk to me later. But now here we are, and he's getting ready to go to kindergarten. They grow up so fast. And James says, desire, when left unchecked, grows up so quickly and brings forth death. The hideous child of our own desires. Doesn't Paul say that the wages of sin is death? We are tempted by our own desires. There is an enemy within. So what then are the implications? Well, first of all, we know that trials will often bring with them temptations. Desire will often take, the advan- take advantage of the God-ordained goodness of trials and use it for its own twisted ends. So if you are suffering or you are afflicted today, be ready. Temptation isn't far behind. And trials are never an excuse or a free pass to sin. Secondly, we have to be honest with ourselves for our own spiritual good. This is painful teaching. But the reason that doctors give x-rays is so that they can provide a solution. So being honest with ourselves this morning, we have to say, I sin because I'm a sinner. The desire is within me. And thirdly, implicitly, our only hope is in a sinless Savior who endured through temptation without giving in. Here's the glorious reality. The Lord Jesus Christ took on a body. He is the God-man. And he was tempted severely in every way. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because we have one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. There is one man who was able to bear up under temptation, and his name is Jesus. Now James tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil, but the writer to the Hebrews and all of the Gospels tell us that Jesus was truly and really tempted. So let's not bother ourselves with a bunch of philosophizing about how that could be true. It's enough for us to know that our Savior bore up under temptation and succeeded where you and I fail every time. The magnetic pull of desire was real for Jesus, but he never gave in. And this is an essential element of the word of truth to which James turns next. Not only are we tempted by our own desires, but here is the glorious and the good news. We are recreated by our God. Recreated. Look at verses 16 to 18. James says, do not be deceived. Don't be misunderstood. Don't be led astray from the truth. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God does not bring trial, or or temptation uh, rather. He does not bring things that lead to death. He brings good gifts. Every good and every perfect gift. You can include in this the refreshing rain in a summer evening, the beauty of a sunrise, the comfort and security of the love of a spouse or of a parent, the joyful giggle of a newborn baby girl or boy. The gift of rest and sleep, the beauty of art and culture and creativity, all of these things, everything that is truly right and good in our universe is given as a gift from the Lord. We should never be afraid to give thanks for those things as if it's not spiritual. 
But do you know what God's best gift is? His most perfect gift, we might say? God's most perfect gift to us, friends, is that he recreates his people in Christ. James tells us that he's the father of lights. He made them all. And the only constant with the lights, the sun, moon, and the stars, from our perspective, is change. The sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. The moon at one point is a full moon, the next a crescent. Stars are born and stars die. The shifting shadows of the lights in the sky, the turning tides of creation. But James says, assess the father of lights against what he's made and you will see that he never changes. Not only does he give good gifts, he will always give good gifts. And he longs to give this gift of new birth to all of his people. Of his own will, he brought us forth. You know, that's the same word that James uses for sin's ugly child's death. James says God doesn't bring forth death. God brings forth life. He brings you forth. He's willing to change you radically and eternally. You know, Jesus, when he speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he tells Nicodemus, you know, Nick, you've got to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. What he actually says, you need to be born from above. You need a gift from the Father of lights. You need something good and perfect to come down to you and change you. We're not talking about simply making a decision for Jesus. We're not talking simply about accepting Christ. We're talking about God coming and the person and work of Jesus and restarting your engine so that your heart begins to beat with new desires, so that temptation has less sway over you, so that you begin to find almost, almost impossibly to explain that you begin to desire Jesus more than sin. And it's two steps forward, one step back, but nevertheless, he brought you forth. He made you new. Remember, James is saying, no change, no salvation. But the wonderful news is that God is a God who longs to bring his people forth. Why? Because he wants to. How wonderful is that in the text? Of his own will. It was his plan, his purpose, his design, his initiative. It's all him. He loves us because he loves us. How's that for power and majesty? How does he do it? He does it through the word of truth, the gospel. How did God make the universe, friends? He spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. How does God take a a sinful man or woman and make them alive in Jesus? He speaks. You hear the voice of Jesus crying out from the cross to tell us that it is finished. It has been finished. It will always be finished. And then inside of our hearts, we hear our name called out, Lazarus, come out. This is the word of the gospel that Jesus came as the sinless Savior and bore up under temptation, never sinning, so that then he could go to the cross and lay down his life for your sin and be brought back from death to life so that you could too. So that you could be changed. So that your affections would be transformed. And he did it in order to show the world a preview of his glorious work in all of creation. James says he's done this so that you and I would be a first fruits of his creatures. You know what the first fruits are? 
It's the best and choicest part of the harvest. James says, that's you. If God's transformed your life in Jesus, that's you. You're a sign to the world of where the world's going. God is in the business even now of completely recreating everything. We long for the day when heaven and earth are united, when death is no more, when the lion lies down with the lamb, where children play over the adder's den, where everything in this world that's been ravaged by sin is completely and finally eradicated. Isn't that what Jesus says at the end of Revelation? Behold, I am making all things new. You read Revelation, if you want to get one thing out of Revelation, get that. I am making all things new. And what James is telling us is that he's beginning that work one sinner at a time. So that when you are brought forth from death to life, spiritual slavery to spiritual freedom, it's as if you're a little slice of heaven for the world to see. You know, we get from time to time these stories, dramatic stories, and who am I to, to judge whether they're true or not? If someone who dies and, you know, they, they go and they see heaven and then they come back and their life is completely transformed. I'd like that. James is saying that the only thing you need in order to see heaven is to have heaven unleashed in you. For God's kingdom to be made realized in you, to be brought forth. How do I do that? Well, this is something that God does. But he does it for every man, woman, boy, or girl who confesses. You know what, Lord? For a really long time, I've been blaming my sin on external things. You know, that impulse is as old as the garden. When Adam looks at the Lord and he says, you know, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. It's not my fault. It's definitely her fault. And probably not a little bit your fault. Because you gave me the dreadful woman in the first place. And you say to the Lord, you know, for the longest time I've been hiding behind excuses. But I want to come to you freely this morning and tell you, it's my own desire. I sin because I'm a sinner. And I need to be changed and saved and transformed. And I understand that if there's any hope for me, it's not in me. It's in Jesus, who bore up under temptation and came out flawless, who died and rose again so that I might go from death to life. And I'm asking you, Lord, would you do that for me? Well, God never changes. His promise was as true then as it is now. You want to be reborn? You want to have a little taste of heaven? Here and now, look outside of yourself. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish Presbyterian minister, used to always say, for every look you take at yourself, take ten at Christ. So we've seen the ugly reality of our desire. We see the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is even now making all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do indeed tell us what no one else will. 
that you look, look at us with love and mercy through your word and you tell us that you are the man or you are the woman. You sin because you are tempted by your own desire. You are responsible. And yet you don't leave us there. You tell us that there's a pathway from death to life. That there's an alternative to the desires that give birth to sin and then give birth to death. There's a father of lights who gives birth to his people. You make the dead live. You cry out to us by our name so that we might come forth out of the tomb and follow you. And so we pray for each and every one of us here this morning that as we think about what your word has told us, as the x-ray of your word is held up to our hearts and we understand our sin, that we would then turn very quickly to take ten looks at Jesus. We would cast all of our hope upon him that we plead to him for mercy and grace, that we would be made new, and that we would follow him. Thank you, Lord, for being the good and faithful shepherd. We pray all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen.